You are listening to a unique and special production of the 110-250 Audio Studio. What's this? A day bird? A yard bird? Who's the bird? Where is it? Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino series in conjunction with the 110-250 Audio Studio with bandmate and sound engineer John Evans of the former Kansas City Power Pop band, The Daybirds. As a part of a larger mission to capture the essence, history, and bravado of the late 90s, early 2000s band, we cover fertile ground here. From his current base in Baltimore, Maryland, he gets into his personal band history prior to joining The Daybirds. When he joined The Daybirds, his raw reflections at how it all all went down and so much more dig in and enjoy and then whenever you're ready to roll we'll dive I'm right re- in i'm ready dive away so my name is john evans and uh in the daybirds uh my i currently perform under the name john velge um in the daybirds i was started out as a recording engineer and producer and then i re- so i recorded the u rock ep um and then they asked me to join the band when Phil left. And so I was uh, played guitar, played bass, sang backing vocals, and was just, I guess, a co-creator. Um, played drums as well. So let's go back to the beginning here, the alpha of everything. As mm-hmm. a kid, what did you have a dream of becoming when you grew up? What did you want to do? I saw that question, and I honestly can't remember. I know I had dreams of being a rock and roll guitar player because when 1984 came out, I made a cardboard version of Eddie Van Halen's guitar and played that in my basement. Um, But, you know, that was, I was an adolescent, young adolescent at that point. So before that, um, I really don't remember what I dreamt of becoming when I grew up. Um, probably a litany of things. And I know, like, you know, Rockstar was probably one of them. Um, I don't know the working musician was one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's- That's a lot different than Rockstar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell me where you're from originally. Kind of how did your geographical lineage lead to Baltimore? So I'm originally from Kansas City. I grew up in Independence, Missouri. Um, And then, you know, I went to high school. All the Daybirds guys were from north of the river, up around Liberty, and I was from south of the river um, in eastern Jackson County. So born in Independence, moved to kind of Lee Summit, and then ended up in south Kansas City, um, and then lived in Midtown, in my 20s and 30s and then moved back out to South Kansas City uh, and then moved to Baltimore in 2021. So talk to me a little bit about your early baptismal and music, whether recorded, you know, records, CDs, and even like the first show that you witnessed in person. I mean, my early baptismal was, you know, it probably was my sister's Elton John records. Um my dad's John Denver records. Um, when I was little, my mom sang in the church and the church choir 
uh, they would get together and play exceptionally secular songs. Um, some friends of ours owned a restaurant on the square in Independence called the Courthouse Exchange, and they had a piano in there. And so on weekend nights, they'd all all the folks from the church choir would would get together and and get drunk and have a a hoot and nanny in the basement of the courthouse exchange restaurant where they'd play piano and sing songs. And I just remember being captivated by that. And this guy uh, that was a friend of my mom and dad's by the name of Mike Fields, who could play any instrument, he could play piano, guitar, bass, um, anything. And that was really sort of my, um, my baptismal into it into music itself and then pretty early on i moved away from my sister's i remember this one evening i was at home and i had usually i used to listen to q104 radio because that was the station my sister listened to and one night i tuned my radio to ky102 which was the rock and roll station in town and my sister came in and she's like she was older than me and she's like oh ky you're you're a rock and roll guy now. And I just was like, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. Why wouldn't I be? Um, And so, you know, at a pretty early age, I diverged. And like the first record I ever bought was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Or no, excuse me. The first record I ever bought was Breakfast in America by Supertramp. And then I remember going and buying, somebody gave me Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I love rock and roll. And then I remember going and buying Frankie Goes to Hollywood, um, having making my grandma take me to Bernstein and Appleby at the Blue Ridge Mall to buy that. Um, and so pretty early on, my taste in music went pretty wide, um, you know, from Supertramp to Joan Jett to Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. That was it. I mean, that was like, my sister was a pretty dyed in the wool. Like she took me to my first concert. It was Genesis at Kemper arena. Um, and you know, I was probably 12 or 13 at that point. But by that point I was into Duran Duran. I was into Van Halen. I was into the Rolling Stones. So I was into men at work. So it was, and then, but I was still into like my dad's, like, you know, John Denver records and Waylon Jennings records. And I remember he had Waylon and Willie, WW1, I think it was. And so it was just really early on. My musical taste was kind of all over the map. So when was it that you picked up an instrument? When did you start making music and playing a part of your diet? I mean, honestly, early on, the first instrument I got was a drum set. It was one of those little miniature drum sets from like, you know, Sears and Roebuck or Montgomery Wards. And I had an uncle who was a drummer. Um, and so I think he probably talked my parents into getting that for me. And then <clears throat> when I was probably eight years old, I was taking piano lessons. Um, and all of my first piano lessons were play by ear. So there was no Suzuki method or anything like that. Um, so, you know, that was probably when I was eight years old. And then of course, by the time I hit about 12 or 13, that wasn't cool enough. And so I didn't play really any instruments again until I was 18. And then I had a friend who was a 
guitar player and he had an electric guitar and I basically was just like, you need to teach me how to play guitar. And so he gave me the Mel Bay chord book and he loaned me a PVT60 electric guitar and I played that for about two months, maybe three, and then I used my tax refund check to buy a black Stratocaster um, because of Dan Wilson from Trip Shakespeare had one. So by the time I was 18 or 19, it was all about electric guitar. And I was listening to whatever I could and trying to figure out guitar as best I could. So what were the bands that you were in prior to the Daybirds? God. So there was a band, I guess my first band that played out was just a duo. Um, it was a guy who was a, his name was Ben, and he was way into REM, and so was I. And so we had a drummer, but we didn't have a bass player. And so Ben and I just ourselves went and played a show at Davies as a duo and then not long after that, I was in a band called Big Perm um, with Don Thompson, who goes back in Kansas City a ways. He was in one of Mike Allmeyer's first bands. Um, and that band played for a few years and then broke up. And then I started uh, St. Jude. It was named Famous FM, then became St. Jude. And when I was in St. Jude, I had a studio in my house and recorded all of our stuff, and that's how I met the Daybirds um, right around 2000, I guess whenever they recorded You Rock, because I recorded that, and that was when I met them. So talk to me a little bit about what it was like when you met these guys. What what was what was your first like professional relationship with them, and how did it grow over the years? I mean, when I met them, I had moved into this airplane bungalow kind of in South Brookside or off of 63rd Street, and they needed to record an EP. And so I said, sure, I'll do it. And these guys walked in, and they, like, I think the first thing that, like, blew my mind, you know, this is probably, what, 2002, 2000, I'd say it was probably 2002. Um, you know, here were four guys that, like, were as into bands like Dag Nasty and, uh, you know, those kind of bands as they were Jellyfish, as they were David Garza, as they were Radiohead. And I was like, well, you, do you mean to tell me that there are people, other people in Kansas City who are as into like these like syrupy pop rock bands like jellyfish as they are into these like kind of hardcore punk bands like dag nasty like i i only knew the only people i knew in kansas city that would admit to being into dag nasty and jellyfish were in a band with me and so i was like so there, wait there are people here who exist who like those who like all that music and they're not in a band with me like who are these guys um and that was like I mean, our professional relationship uh, kind of, you know, it started with that. Um, and they had they had recorded Turnstile. They were not headed in such in such that sort of overproduced or well produced direction. Um, this was like, you know, the Strokes bands like the Strokes and Interpol and kind of all that rock revival kind of garagey sounding stuff had kind of 
made a real resurgence. And so I think that was making a real imprint on a lot of us. Um, not maybe so much the style of the songs, but the style of, of recording and the style of producing songs. And so that seemed to be the direction they were going. And so this little airplane bungalow I had with, you know, uh, plaster walls and hardwood floors and this long staircase where you could get a really kind of raw drum sound was just like, I mean, I remember when Johnny set his drum set up in the living room and we started micing it up and he started playing it and we just both looked at each other and our eyes were like the size of like, you know, LP records. We were just like, holy shit, this is going to sound right. And, and it did. I mean, like that, that EP, like there's, I, I happened to listen to a couple, I don't have that EP, but I happened to find a couple of them on YouTube today. And I was like, yeah, man, some of those songs sounded exactly like we wanted them to sound. You were in that capacity with recording them. When did you kind of cross pollinate or get to a point where you were jamming with them and it became something where it was a peer to peer kind of a thing? I mean, <clears throat> so we did a few tours with them. Um, I remember like St. Jude and the Daybirds played, you know, we played kind of Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, and kind of the, you know, the punk rock chitlin circuit across upper Iowa. And so we were kind of crossing paths on the road quite a bit. Um, and there was a show in Madison where they were playing, it was their last song of the set. And I was just taking their drums off the stage as they were finishing the song. Dan and my drummer and I just kind of loaded, started loading them off the stage before they were quite done. Um, so we were more or less between the three guys in my band and the four guys in the Daybirds, we were acting as bandmates um, before we were really playing together. Uh, and, you know, just kind of beating vans across I 80 um, kind of relentlessly. And, Around the time that Phil left, I think it was John and maybe Dean, John Sweetwood and maybe Dean, who kind of broached the subject asking me, you know, how would I feel about joining? How did I feel about, you know, St. Jude winding down? Because we had just released, a we had just produced a full-length record that John worked with us on and kind of co-produced, Sweetwood. And so they were like, you know, they were, to their credit, you know, sensitive and compassionate about the idea of like me walking away from St. Jude and playing with them. And, but it was, you know, I told them it was just a natural fit. I'd been collaborating with them on recording for quite a while now. And then kind of, we'd been co-conspirators in shows and touring and playing together for quite a while anyway. So it just kind of made sense. So talk to me a little bit about that magic that you felt was in the band when you were recording them and how you saw the evolution as you got into the band. How, how did all of that begin and how did it evolve to the way you felt when you were in the band with them? I think, I mean, it began, it's kind of funny. It began, it began, and you'll probably cover this later, but it began exactly 180 degrees opposite of how everything ended. Um, it began with the songs and with music. Um, and so it, they would, and I think the reason those guys, I don't want to speak for them, but I think the reason those guys kept wanting to record with me and eventually wanted to play with me 
is because, and this was a mutual thing, but when I heard their songs, I would hear something in those songs that they hadn't heard that I was able to collaborate with them and say, hey, what if we try this idea? And it might just be a method of recording it, or it might just be an arrangement idea or something along those lines. And more often than not, they were like, yeah, that's the sauce we were missing. That was this like little ingredient in this in this chili that 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 made it work. Um, and I think that came out of having a lot of the same sensibilities for different kinds of music. Um, because on an individual basis, with each one of those guys, Phil, Dean, John, and Johnny, there was always at least one or two bands that the two of us could talk about and have this real love and affinity for. And you start with that in a band and you can really create some pretty amazing shit. Um, And so through the production process, that was what we discovered. And so when it came time to start playing in the band, whether it was play guitar, play drums, I mean, primarily, I think they had sort of gotten over the electronic ukulele thing um, and wanted to start getting into more guitars. I know around the time that we started playing together, Dean had gotten an electric guitar. um, And so they were going to start featuring that to kind of fill things out a little bit. Um, and that was, and I was, you know, I mean, I was first and foremost a guitar player. And so, but it wasn't a situation where it was like, you're going to come into the Daybirds and be the guitar slinger. I think, I think there was a little, there might've been a little bit of pressure from the management company to sort of be like, Hey, we need to start identifying roles for you guys. Who's the drummer? Who's the guitar player? Who's the singer? Who's the bass player? But among those guys, it was like, no, that's bullshit. You know, like we all can play all the instruments. And so when they looked at me, they were like, well, John can play drums. He he can play guitar. He can play keyboards. He can play bass. And he's got a studio and he, he knows how to make microphones an instrument. Um, and so while there was probably some pressure on the commercial business side to start identifying roles, on the creative side of things, that was like the last thing on anyone's mind. I don't, I don't, I think that, I think that had a label, had we gotten to a point where a label was starting to push that, I think it would have just been like, no, fuck you. Like the hook is that we can all switch instruments during a show. And that's like, if you ask anybody in the crowd, that's one of the cool, everybody will tell you that's one of the coolest things. Yeah. I I could sense that, you know, I'm thinking now, you know, from the timeline that I saw, you kind of came in during this time when there was transition, you know, Phil was leaving the band and, Mm -hmm. you know, they had that big decision with Renee on the phone. There was all this transition that was going on. But what I'm sensing, the more I look into this timeline here is there had to be a sense of relief that something was settled and that there was, there was going to be a level of stability when you got into the band. Did you get that sense after, like, your first gigs, whether it was live or it was in practice, that there was a sense of relief and there was a direction that was going to pick up and life was going to move on? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I'm kind of like, I'm going to, if you, you know, I set aside, like, the management deal, label, business piece of it, 
and just focus on the kind of the commer- the the creative piece of it. Um, and when you look at the creative piece of it, I th- I did get that idea that there was like sort of this kind of stability. Um, and I think one of the th- not, maybe not stability. I'm not like I don't want to mean like I don't want it to mean that way because it's not like they were unstable before. But I think one of the things that I always pushed on and you know i'm i might be too much about this but i was always like we we i want to do things that serve the song and if it doesn't serve the song i don't want to do it and i think there had been in the band up to that point if like you listen to the musical progression it was well let's do something to try it and that's that's you do that but then you ask yourself, okay, we tried it. How does it serve the song? And and so there would things were when like when I listened to Turnstile, and I listened to You Rock, and then I listened to the Celine demos. Things sort of started progressing into this like as as it should with any band, as it should with any co- creative collective. Um, you're doing things to serve the greater whole rather than just serve these individual one-off ideas or stabs in the dark. And so I think they were ready to start moving less into, well, let's just try it for shits and giggles and then keep it, and more into, well, let's if we try it, what's, what's the reason within the song to do it? How does it serve the lyric? How does it serve the melody? How does it serve the vibe and the feel of the song? And I think when they were recording with me, they were like, you know, this is the first person who like, A, makes the drums sound great because those Vegas demos that I texted Johnny this morning, I was like, if you guys had a drum set in Las Vegas, you couldn't have proved it by what came out when you were finished recording. Um, and he's like, yeah, whereas on the other hand, yours, the drums sounded amazing. And it's like, so everything had to sound good. All the instruments had to sound like rock and roll instruments, but, but the idea is it was about serving the song. And I think that was just the growth of these four guys as songwriters where they got to the point where they were like, you know, our songs are good enough that they should be the reason we do something, not the other way around. You know, the one thing that I noticed and, and there's been talks and you've talked about this and I know the other guys have everybody that I've since this idea attached, I think everybody's going back and listening you know, I ride my bike and I love listening to music and I can hone in. And I've gone from the beginning to those Vegas recordings and there was a definite change. It was very reflective. I mean, you always hear that music is just another form of communication. It's another way that we interact with the world. Your feelings come out of it. There was definitely a sea change. How would you quantify that? How would you quantify the the first time you heard the Daybirds to the the final recording that you ever heard that was actually done in earnest in a space. What what was your feeling of their evolution and sound over time? Well, I mean, you know, I don't remember the year. What year did they do Turnstile? Okay, so I, I did get kind of an idea that um, everything kind of began in 97. And right. then they were the Sky Kings, and the Sky Kings got a cease and desist letter they became the Daybirds, and to christen that new name, they went and did Turnstile. I believe it was 98 or 99 yeah. that so, seemed about my recollection. So based on that, you know, a couple things happened. Um, and I know these were, I don't, I don't, 
you know, I don't want to force this on anybody, but I know some of this was a big deal. Um, you know, 9-11 happened in that time period between uh, yeah. Turnstile and, and Rock, and, and all the, the war in Iraq and all that shit. And I remember having conversations about that in my little airplane bungalow and out on the front porch when we were recording. Um, so I'm, and, and, you know, the Daybirds were never an overtly political band. Um, but I do remember one of the first shows I played with them, you know, I think it was Johnny, you know, we're the Daybirds and we won't blow up your country. Um, was the first thing he said. And we were all like, fuck yeah, you know? I mean, so I'm not going to pretend that that the state of the world, you know, didn't play into it. So everything got way more fucking serious after September 11th, 2001. Fucking everything did. All my music did. People's outlooks did. And so that was part of it. But I also think some of it was a maturation as songwriters um an idea that like <clears throat> you know like i said like we're 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 pretty good at this songwriting thing we're getting pretty good at it we're getting better at at understanding what we want to do in the studio and when you start to realize that like you know well we started out and we would get a lot of people at our shows because they were our friends and we knew them from school but people are coming back to our shows because the songs are good and because our performances are good um, and then new people are coming to the shows because they've heard about the songs and about the performances. And when that starts happening, you start to look at your songs and you start to say, you know, we're putting a lot of effort in these. We're putting a lot of time into these. They deserve to be taken seriously in terms of how we make them and in terms of how we perform them. And so I think those things happened and they kind of coalesced with each other. Um, just kind of like the weight of the world and the weight of the songs all got heavier around the same time. That is so well said, man. And I didn't even factor that in. I know that, you know, but, and also as artists, you grow and, mm -hmm. and you can't separate the art from the, the, the individual. I mean, people get married, people get into relationships, people get out of relationships, people have families. There's all these things that kind of morph and form. And I noticed that with the, with the Vegas songs, there was a level of maturity that was different. You know, there was a light, airy, pre-Abbey Road Beatles that was going on in the early years. And then after that, it got to be more of, like, what what the Beatles kind of were doing. There was a level of experimentation, depth, new instruments, new ways of looking at it. And like you keep saying, coming back to, there was a level of serving the song. And I think mm -hmm. that, that that's maturity. That's what you do when you're a musician. You mature into your role as an artist. Well, how how do you listen to the words, I'm on your side, don't you know? in the wake of 9-11 and not know exactly what Phil's talking about. You know, yeah. that that's as, yeah, that, that might, I don't know. I never asked Phil what that song was about. It might have been a song about being in a relationship with someone. But goddamn, man, it, you know, it sure feels like a song you sing when you walk out your front door and you go to your neighbor and, and you go to the people it, at the polling place with you and you just want to say, I'm on your side, don't you know? You know, um, it's it's a universal lyric, it's a universal theme, but when that at that time, that song hit me on so many. That lyric hit me on so many different levels, and I was just pissed off 
that that song sounded so fucking wimpy in how it was recorded. And you know what? I don't mean to slag all these guys because, you know, Dennis Rodriguez, goddamn it, he's a good fucking dude. But goddamn, those fucking songs sounded like they were rock and roll songs recorded by somebody that's used to recording Celine Dion, you know? And they those songs from Vegas deserve to sound better than they did. And it was really a pisser that they didn't. Talk to me a little bit about from when you came into the band to the end. What was kind of your recollection of that time in your career? I mean, we're talking about John Evans, the musician, that had all kinds of success on your own. And you're in this band. What was your recollection of being a unit, a part of this band? Honestly, like, I mean, that was the point at which I've probably done some of the best work I've ever done because it was in collaboration with people that took the songs as seriously they, as they did. Um, I don't, you know, I, I'm proud of all the stuff I've done as a solo artist and as a front man for bands that I've been in. But in terms of collaborative work, that's, you know, I always felt like artistically that was where I hit my stride. And I had had experience with that with other bands that had been in the studio and other artists that had been in the studio where I was collaborating as a producer and as a recording engineer, but not necessarily collaborating as a musician. In some cases I was, but that being, it was like a, it was like a Jim O'Rourke role um, for me and, or, you know, and, Anyway, yeah, it was, I guess, yeah, it was like a Jim O'Rourke role or a Brian Eno role or something like that, where you're, you're kind of both a musician and a producer and an engineer. Um, and even with everything I'd done before that point, and even with everything I've done as a, I, you know, they call it a solo artist, but I've never been a solo artist because I've always played in bands. Um, but in that collaborative environment, I was able to do some of the best work because I was able to focus on making sure that what I was doing was really good and not trying to do more and not having, not being in a position to do more. And then just able to go to somebody else and say, what you're doing there is really good. What if we try this? And if it didn't work, it didn't work. And if it did work, it did work. I didn't need to worry about credit or blame for that, you know? So I'm curious as we kind of get towards the actual physical end of the Daybirds as we know it. You know, you were there. You were a part of that. How did that happen? How? What was the conversation? What was the last time you met? Did the door close? Was it cracked? What was kind of the, the inverted pyramid of that moment in the Daybird's history when everybody decided to move on? So it was exactly 180 degrees opposite of how my introduction to that band started. Um, my introduction to that band was my introduction to those four guys. And everything was about songs. And everything was about their songs and other songs we loved. The end of that band, as I recollect it, was n- we got to this point where nothing was about fucking songs again. It was about, you know, road cases. It was about coming up with a budget for Dennis to give to some fucking Dave Platel guy. It was about 
have these businessmen and have the fucking suits sent us recording contracts. It was about, well, what are we going to do with, uh, you know, what are we going to do for money in the year that we produce this record? And what label are they going to shop it to? And there wasn't a, I mean, we went through weeks where we were supposed to be working on songs and recording. And the majority of our time together was just talking about bullshit that had nothing to do with songs. And if I, like, if I were to give advice, if I were to be qualified to give advice to someone who's playing music or in a, in a band or starting out playing music, it's that if you're ever in a collaborative project and the conversation starts being about something predominantly other than the songs you're making, you need to fucking hit the brakes. Um, but because that's when you know things are are deteriorating and that was really what happened i mean we were at this point where all these other things were kind of up in the air and you know we'd been told that this was going to happen and that what that might happen and you know dennis got the rug pulled out from under him and he just got shit on by these you know these fucking suits whose job it is to shit on everything um and pretend like they could do it better when they can't but, you know, <clears throat> when the guy that Phil Spector pulled a gun on trashes your career, you're pretty surely not going to talk about songs anymore. Um, and so that's kind of where it went. It went to this place where these four guys who were willing to spend the rest of their adult lives living in a van or a tour bus would have crossed the street if they saw another one walking in the opposite direction. Um, and it was because all this other shit, I know it's like, sounds so cliche. It's a, it's not about the songs anymore, man, but it, it really did just stop being about the songs. Um, and it was, you know, it was about all these other things and all this bullshit about business that, you know, I'm sure Mike Stipe and Peter Buck and Mike Mills and Bill Barry had plenty of conversations about what fucking tour gear they were going to have or what they were going to get paid for this or that. And I'm sure, you know, the replacements did too, although those guys probably didn't. But it it just was like, it was the opposite of how I had found this band. And when that happens, that's when you're like, yeah, we're on borrowed time. Um and maybe had things come together and coalesced, we we would have reverted back to mainly focusing on the songs. And I think that's really what happened. I think like, you know, we'd been in a period of really pretty intense creative output. We spent two and a half months demoing and recording and producing songs to shop to the agency and to different labels. So we, you know, our brains probably needed a creative rest, to be honest. But I don't think that was really the kind of rest we needed. We probably needed to go out on the road and just perform those songs for a couple months. Um, so, and that's kind of like the cycle that seems to work for bands is you go in this real creative, intense period where you make a record and then you go out and you perform it and you kind of perfect it after you've recorded it. Um, and you create all these ephemeral albums in different cities that never happened again. 
and we didn't get to do that. And I think that if we'd have been able to do that, who knows how long that band would have continued. Um, you asked about whether or not the door was cracked. I don't know. Um, you know, I play music anywhere and everywhere I can. So my door is always cracked, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know where the rest of those guys left it. Uh, you know, I know Johnny went and played and did some solo stuff that was really cool. Um, I don't know the extent to which Dean and John and Phil are into playing again. Well, and I guess that's the thing. When I looked at this, one of the reasons why I, I'm, I'm in this is because all of you guys collectively are some of my favorite people on earth ever. And I think that what was so emblematic of everything when everybody was together was that there was this friendship, there was this bond, there was this time that a lot of people live in their lives, but it was, there was something different about it. There was this creative nexus and it was fueled by this friendship and this genuine good feeling that we're going to make our fucking lives good. And we're going to do it because we have all of these ingredients that make sense. So my question to you is, is that a lot of fans, you know, that they, 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 they leave and they, and they move on and it's almost like high school graduation or whatever. And it's like, what, what would you say to people? Was there something that was left unsaid? Would you like to say something or have anything that, 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 that wasn't said that could be said? Do you ever feel like that now that we're what, 20 years away from this band? disbanding and leaving is there anything that's on your radar that's like man if i had that one moment or i'd like to say this or there's something that i'd like to resolve is there ever been any feeling like that you know i mean i've i've stayed pretty well connected to all of them i haven't really seen heidner hair phil since he left but you know i'm still connected with john and johnny and dean um and i think you know i think those guys know how i feel about them I, you know, I, I was pretty open with all of them when things broke up too, you know, and that was, and I mean, and in the wake of it, you know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't part of that band for as long. I don't have the history with those guys that they have with one, with the four of them that they have with one another. But in just the few years that we worked together and played together, I got close enough with them that. I was able to just be totally honest with all of them. And I never really felt like I had to pull punches. And, you know, that was mostly about the maturity of the people that were involved, not necessarily about me. Um, you know, they were grown up enough to be able to take whatever shitty thing or kind thing I was able to utter. Um, but, I mean, you know, I, they, I, I always felt like they they knew that I I – respected the hell out of them and their music and what they were doing and always wanted to continue to do it. Um, you know, and I think, I think they also knew that like the ignominious, uh, way that the, that the management company that had kind of dangled this future in front of us, that my attitude was like, fuck those guys. You know, we didn't fucking need them to be here. We don't fucking need them to go further. Um, they never would have fucking gotten us anyway. They never would have figured it out. There's no way a bunch of these multimillionaire shitbag 
dudes working out of a fucking office in Caesar's Palace were ever going to get what the what a bunch what four fucking dudes from the suburbs of Kansas City were about, you know? They weren't going to get it. And so, yeah. you know, let's not be undercut by these fucking assholes. I mean, literally the dude that pulled the plug, that shut the whole thing down is a guy that Phil Spector pulled a fucking gun on in a recording studio. And it's not because Phil Spector was wrong. You know, fuck that guy. He wasn't going to get us. And I'll I'll I would say that and I think everybody knows I would say that to him and I would say it to anybody. Dave Patel was not going to get the Daybirds. He was never going to fucking get the Daybirds. He didn't fucking have it in him. And, you know, I think I said that to those guys at the time, but if I didn't, I would say it to them now. So, you know, like my thing was, let's not let these fucking guys be the end of this fucking band because they're not shit. Amen. So that's my next question. You lead right into it. You get a phone call here in a week or two, months from now, and you have somebody that's serious that would love to see you guys on stage one more time, what's your answer going to be? Dude, my answer to that would be the same answer it is every time. Have Telecaster, will travel. I got, I got fucking, I always fucking play music. If somebody calls me to play, I fucking play music. That's what I do. That's what musicians do. We play music. And I would figure those songs out again. I could sit down and figure them out. They weren't that hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So I guess that's the other part of this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, how good would it be for all of you guys collectively to possibly have some kind of level of just saying, hey, and talking? You know, I mean, probably pretty good because honestly, like so much of the shit that that was that that the end of that band was about is so far in the past now. I mean, those, you know, like whatever the interpersonal stuff that was going on, it was it was so it was just about so much ephemeral shit that doesn't even exist anymore, relationships that don't exist anymore, things that went on, you know, in retrospect, no, they shouldn't have gone on, but it's all past, it's all said and done. And the the people at the label who were about the, the you know, putting the kibosh on the business piece of it, those people are probably drooling into a cup right now. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, I would, I would, I would think everybody could look back on that and go, yeah, you know, I mean, that was all some petty bullshit in retrospect. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think about, too, when I think back to that time in my life. Like, what was really going on? What were problems? And you can't remember most of them. No, no. That's what happens with age. You get to that point. So the other part of this that I I think would be really cool, that would be a part of this collective to kind of cement the, the legacy of the Daybirds is to have all these recordings out. And there are some of them that are out, like eBay specials and people that have copies. I had a cassette tape that I don't know that anybody really got their hands on. There's all these things. But would you like to see those Vegas recordings come out, ideally as a part of a catalog to cement the history of this band? Only if I got my hands on the raw tracks and I could remix them and make them sound good. I mean, yeah, yeah, because the songs are great. But goddamn, they need to be remixed. I mean, I, you know, Johnny and I both like, and I, I mean, I think John and Phil maybe too, but it's just like, you know, they just, yeah, they, the songs are great. And I think the way they were tracked would be good. They just were mixed by somebody that didn't give a shit about the songs. This is wonderful, man. Thank you for, you, you, 
you've shown so many lights that were unexpected for me in this um, unearthing of, of, of the daybirds and, and this, what I consider one of the heaviest Kansas City bands that actually came out before this digital revolution. I think that's the other part of this that's intriguing to me. Do you feel like there would have been a better way that this band could have survived if it would have hit a digital realm like we're living right now with social media and everything, you know, being easier to get out to people? Yeah, I'm, you know, I think I, I think a lot about every band I was in before because, like, you know, the Daybirds and I know particularly the Daybirds and, and St. Jude Famous FM, like, everything we made was made by playing shows. It was every every fan outside of Kansas City we made was made by being on the road. Um and bands don't bands don't do that now. It's especially since COVID. It's even worse. You know, just like I I just fear so much every day for my friends who had to make their living by playing shows. Um because if you're not Taylor Swift or Harry Styles, it's there's just not a lot of money out there for you. Um, but I think that there was enough savvy about how to market the band and how to market songs among us um, that in this current era, in this iteration of what is the digital online, uh, a, you know, marketing and and way bands get promoted and break yeah i think it could have you know i think i think the songs were there it's hard to say um what the songs would sound like if they were made today but i i think that and and you know stylistically how it would fit into music right now but i th- i think that there was enough enough of an awareness of how to present a band and how to have an image um, and how to, how to make things compelling that we could have, we could have blossomed in a digital era um, and been, and made, made very good songs in this, in this sort of world that we're in right now. I, I, it's hard to say the reason I, I sound doubtful or I sound hesitant in this is it's really hard to look at a band that relied so much on being in a van and driving from city to city and figure out how they would do that in this environment right now because I just so many friends I have that are touring all the time just it's just woeful for them Um, and so that's like that's a piece of it that I'm kind of curious about you know it would be interesting to see if we would be able to pull that off and or how we would do that yeah absolutely john evans man this has been wonderful as i say to everybody stay tuned dot 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 hi take care thanks for tuning into another famous interview with joe domino brought to you by the 110 250 audio studio where we give you fresh and comprehensive insights into the finest musicians in the world thanks to john for opening up a big portal into the daybird's history and legacy if you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on both iTunes and Spotify. Swing by the Neon Jazz channel at YouTube.com. And for all things relatable or forgotten, jump over to JoeDomino.com. Until next time, enjoy the music out there. What's this? A day bird? A yard bird? Who's the bird? Where is he?